Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Morning folks, Ian here. Welcome to episode 51 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Today I'm going to do something slightly different. Um, I'm not actually interviewing anyone. I'm going to be talking about something that has generated quite a lot of comment. Um, In short, I I put a a post onto LinkedIn yesterday uh, where I shared my top 10 proposals for getting policing back on track in Britain and it's generated so much reaction uh, which is obviously a really good thing but like everything um, when you put a list of issues out there in bullet point format it's open to all sorts of either accidental or deliberate misinterpretations And it needs a lot more detail putting around it. So that's the purpose of what I'm going to do today. Um, I hope I hope you find it interesting. Uh, I I give it so much thought. You know, it's as you probably can guess, given the fact that I've written this flipping book and I do this podcast and all of my work is around still around law enforcement. Policing is something I give so much thought to. And I speak to so many people who are still involved in policing or or have got a deep subject matter and knowledge around policing. So this is not the man in the pub uh, pontificating on something that he knows nothing about. I think you I'll hope that you would agree with me on that. But the post that I put on has been read. Um, let me see, where are we now? Um, now it's less than 24 hours ago, uh, nearly 30,000 times. And it's had a bigger reaction than anything else I've put onto LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn a lot. And um, so the purpose of, of this podcast really is to is to go through that list and try and put a little bit more detail around why I chose those particular points and what I think uh, those proposals would mean for British policing. So, like everything else I say, this is my opinion. Um, But it is an opinion which is based on quite a lot of experience and knowledge of policing over a very long time. So, first point was, 
end the ridiculous and unnecessary expectation that all police officers have or obtain a degree. I've talked quite a lot about this in previous podcasts. Uh, I think it is um, an intellectualization, an over-intellectualization of what is actually, I think, a very simple job in many ways, albeit policing itself has become a lot more complex. But the basic kind of tasks that police officers are expected to do are um, those that require a great deal of common sense, um, communication skills, uh, lots of human skills and uh, my own view is that having or expecting someone to have a degree does not make someone a better police officer and in many cases quite the opposite because I think they end up over-intellectualising stuff that would be complete common sense to an awful lot of people. And it also potentially risks them um, becoming paralysed with indecision um, because they are thinking about every conceivable uh, ramification or permutation of um, their decision. So I also think that um, it's having a detrimental impact on the mental health of those recruits who are currently going through that process because they're having to go out and do what is Benny's definition a difficult and stressful job as well as trying to study for a degree uh, simultaneously Um, and by all accounts uh, it's also leading to significant abstraction levels on the front line because Uh, I don't know the exact amount of time that they have to spend away, but I believe it's about 20% of their time they have to spend at university. So so on top of all of their other abstractions around annual leave or sickness or whatever, they're also having to spend a significant amount of time away from the front line, which has a big knock-on effect to uh, their colleagues. So that's the first one. My second point was... Actively recruit robust individuals with life experience from other sectors, including the military. So, again, this is sort of linked to my first point in that do we want a bunch of intellectuals in the police service? I don't think we do. Uh, Intellectuals have their place in policing. Um, I certainly worked with some very, very clever people over the years who had many academic qualifications. But when you consider that 97% of the police officer workforce is at PC sergeant and inspector level doing um, operational type roles of one description or another, then blue sky thinking is not massively helpful. Um, The military have got um, people who are eminently suitable uh, for policing. They have come from a structured, disciplined background and many of them have a lot of life experience. That's not to say that we want to flood the organisation with ex-military because I do think, and I've made this point many times before, that we want an organisation that is diverse, uh, that is full of all sorts of different characters, personalities, uh, and uh, an ethnically diverse 
organization that hopefully reflects better the organ the society that it's serving but i do think people leaving the military have got a lot of skills that they can bring into policing but it's not just the military i said robust individuals with life experience i think that word robust is important because the reality is that in policing at some point in time you're going to have to lay hands on someone and the likelihood is that that laying on of hands on someone is going to end in a violent confrontation so you don't want people who are going to run away from that type of uh, physically challenging interaction um, yeah probably just worth just pausing there just to sort of make the point that there are all sorts of other issues uh, that are outside the scope of the 10 points that the police have really got very little slash no control over whatsoever such as pay I'd say things like pay are on a massive issue at the moment for policing the low levels of pay are causing real hardship for officers um, but this list is, is really about things that um, they could or the police or the home office could if they wanted to actually do these things uh, okay so the third point uh, is reintroduce training schools with high standards of discipline to weed out those who have applied to the wrong job so again this is sort of linked i suppose a little bit to the point around policing degrees uh, so there's some, you know, lots of people, I'd say it's the 80-20 principle. The reactions I've got so far on this post have been 80% positive, I would suggest, and 20% negative. Um, interestingly, a lot the, mo the most negative response tends to have come from those people who are involved in delivering the policing degrees. Surprise, surprise, because obviously they would see that as a threat to their income and livelihood, as well as the fact that they're obviously very invested in what they're doing. Um, but I do believe that training schools achieved, they weren't perfect, you know, I'm not suggesting that they were perfect, they were not perfect. But what they did do was that they created a camaraderie, an esprit de corps, call it what you wanted, they reinforced that strong sense of a um, shared mission around policing. There was the opportunity for staff to look at those recruits in great detail over quite a long period of time and decide, is this someone who I would want to be uh, on a policing team with? And if the answer to that is no, then they would be in a position to do something about it and get them out of the organisation before they then went into the police and then became a problem that needed to be solved. So training schools, I think, were had a lot of utility that a university sort of, you know, coming along to a university, you know, a day a week or whatever is just never going to replicate so the fourth point is uh, reform police regulations to get rid of lazy dishonest willfully unfit 
or incompetent officers quickly. So uh, probably useful to point out that in this list, there are certain things that would need to be done first. Because, for example, there's no point trying to uh, fix certain parts of the organisation if you still can't get rid of the people who cause you all sorts of problems. At the moment, police regulations are make it extremely difficult to get rid of incompetent officers and la lazy officers. In fact, it would be really interesting, and I'm even thinking of doing that, if I could be asked, quite honestly, to ask the question of maybe half a dozen of the largest forces in the country. The question is, how many people in the last two years have been sacked as a result of purely performance issues. I would hazard a guess that that number is going to be extremely small. Uh, and as I've described in my book and talked about in other podcast episodes, I've had and, and I've seen many examples of individuals who should not have been in the organisation for, for all sorts of different reasons, but generally around uh, their aptitude for the role, uh, their performance in the job, uh, uh, all sorts of uh, real or imagined issues that they would continually raise with supervisors that sap the time and energy of sergeants and inspectors. And, and there are terrible, terrible sergeants and inspectors. It's not just PCs. There are terrible you know, a small, a small number of terrible people at every rank. And I don't think the police service does itself any favours by tolerating those people in the organisation. And I think if you could streamline the regulations to make it much easier for supervisors to performance manage people out of the organisation, that would be a good thing. Okay, uh, so the next point is uh, reform promotion processes to ensure that only the very best, most highly respected officers get promoted. I mean, this is a massive issue, isn't it, um, in policing? And I suspect it's probably a massive issue in a lot of other organisations as well. Sorry, I was drinking my coffee. Um, the police service has been blighted. I've talked a lot about this in the past. The police service has been blighted by career butterflies, blue sky thinkers and charlatans, frankly, who um, treat the promotion process as their job and do shamelessly do anything and say or do anything in order to tick the promotion boxes and before you know it they're not they're then in a position where they're shaping the policy and strategy of the organization um, and they have very little 
I'm not saying this is the case in every senior officer because it's clearly not. There's lots of brilliant senior officers, but there's far too many who are simply out for themselves and they do not have the best interests of the public at heart and they do not have the best interests of their staff at heart. They are all about themselves. So the promotion process needs to ensure that only those who are the most respected by their peers and by their managers get promoted. So that's all about competence, professional competence in the role. It's all about leadership skills, de demonstrable leadership skills, as well as the technical knowledge to do the job. At the moment, it's very much um, around a box ticking, saying the right thing or writing the right thing in an application form to light up the eyes of the people sitting, um, you know, sifting through those forms. Okay, um, so that's the first five. Um, the next point is reintroduce smart but practical uniforms that command respect and confidence from the public. So, rather frustratingly, um, you know, you get people coming back on this one saying, well, you can't command respect, you have to earn it. It's like, no, yeah, I know, I know. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that police uniforms ever so gradually have become, um, they may have become more practical, but they're certainly not smart. Uh, they look, a lot of police officers look like a sack of shit. Um, and uh, I do recall that press article a couple of years ago ridiculing officers who were stood outside, I believe it was a school up in Yorkshire somewhere, and describing the officers stood outside the school as looking like a bunch of scruffy security guards on a building site. I don't think that in 2022 it is beyond the bounds of possibility to create a police uniform that is both smart and practical. There are all sorts of materials now that can be used that are light, um, you know, quick drying, uh, comfortable, etc., etc., that could be tailored in a way to make police officers look good. And there are plenty of examples of that from other countries around the world. So why it is beyond the wit of British policing to be able to do that, I don't know. I'm also, and I've made this point before, and people will disagree with me, but it's my view, I think these awful high-vis jackets look dreadful. I just don't know why Unless you're a traffic cop or something, like and you don't want to get hit on the hard shoulder of a motorway, why on earth are all police officers now expected to wear these dreadful high-vis, um, you know, jackets and body armour? It just looks awful. Uh, no, again, no other country in the world seems to be so wedded to high, bright yellow high-vis as the British police. 
Um, there's also the issue around hats. Very unusual to see officers patrolling uh, wearing the custodian helmet, which I know might not be the most practical thing in the world, but it's the most iconic symbol of British policing. Um, and I would dearly like to see more officers wearing them. Okay, uh, and one of the points, just to sort of digress from it, one of the points that, um, one of the criticisms that was made about my list from uh, various people was that I was like wanting to bring the police force back into the 1980s or whatever. It's like, no, I don't want to bring the police force back into the 1980s. Um, and if you took the time and effort to look at some of the things that I've done since leaving policing, I've been working on some of the most cutting edge technological um, programs, arguably in the world, uh, all of which to one extent or another have benefits for policing. So no, I don't want to turn the clock back and have us all wandering around in black capes and uh, you know with whistles. Okay, um, so point seven, bring back police canteens to allow officers to relax, decompress and eat in safety and comfort. This, I think, is such an underrated issue. And if you listen to my previous podcast with Hannah Bailey, who's uh, now a psychological therapist working with people uh, from both emergency services, military and healthcare, and uh, she's an ex-police officer who left, you know, feeling thoroughly burnt out. Uh, this was one of her suggestions, one of her sort of top suggestions to improve policing. So why are police canteens important? They're important because they are a place where police officers can go to eat in comfort and uh, safety away from the public and uh, have freshly prepared home-cooked type food which is good for them and good for them not just physically but emotionally and um, psychologically to be able to sit down with their team and have some relaxed banter and decompress from what could have been a very traumatic incident and you also get to meet and sit and drink tea and coffee and eat with lots of other people from the you know the police department or police station that you're working in and it just creates that sense of bonding and camaraderie that queuing for a subway amongst members of the public who are then berating you for eating on duty uh, I mean that's like uh, the, the two are like night and day in terms of what is good for police officers so bring back police canteens I would suggest okay the next one is around um, home office rules so my suggestion was um, streamline home office rules around crime recording and incident resolution to prioritise the issues of greatest concern to the law-abiding public. So this is, uh, I mean, you could write a book just about this alone. 
um, might not be the most interesting book that you'll ever read, but the reality is it would it is incredibly important because the the the, the way that police officers have to work is uh, to a very large extent dictated by the rules that the Home Office set around crime recording and resolving incidents, and it very often feels in policing that the statistical tail is wagging the law, and law enforcement and public safety dog. And weirdly, and I may, again, I made this point in my book, weirdly that the government tends to focus more on crime statistics from the crime survey of England and Wales, which is a deeply flawed um, way of assessing victimization, crime victimization. It's carried out by a private company where there's almost zero transparency around how they do it. And if someone rings you up and asks you about something and you've got a particular agenda or an axe to grind, then you can pretty much say what you like. And there's no ability for anyone to understand uh, to what extent, you know, the statistics within that are correct or not. And then you've got in parallel with that, the home office rules around crime recording, which basically, you know, sorry if I'm sending you to sleep here, but this is important, which basically says if someone reports a crime, any crime, the police must make efforts to find out whether a crime has genuinely been committed or not. And if it, it doesn't need even to be any evidence that the crime took place, it could just be the ramblings of a fixated individual. Uh, it could be a, uh, a silly issue between two neighbours who are falling out. It could be someone who is just uh, deliberately wasting the time of the police but you have to make quite strenuous efforts to try and find out if a crime actually happened or not and police incident logs get rigorously audited both internally and externally now in order to identify instances of where a crime might have taken place but was not formally recorded. So when you hear this expression of police uh, failing to record crime, very often that is actually, that, that headline could probably more accurately be replaced by one that says, police desperate to prioritise those who need their help most, but because of these very rigid home office rules, they have to spend an awful lot of time running around after time wasters and fixated idiots in order to adhere to these rules. But obviously once it gets recorded, it has to be investigated. And an awful lot of the crime that gets reported to the police is of a very kind of relatively low level and some of it is just nonsense. I think Hannah and I used the expression in our podcast that it's just complete bollocks. And what that means is because because 
the police have to kind of deal with everything now because of these very rigid rules around crime recording and and closing off an incident log. Um, it means that it, it makes it much harder for them to prioritise uh, the most serious issues. Um, the, the bit in my point that said... Um, so I'll read that one again. Streamline Home Office rules around crime recording and incident resolution to prioritise the issues of greatest concern to the law-abiding public. So a very um, understandable uh, response to that from quite a lot of people was, well, what are what are the greatest concerns to the law-abiding public? And that's a really good question. And it's a question I don't think that really gets asked uh, enough or even at all. Because... Part of the problem is that the police currently don't really know what it is that the public want them to do because they don't ask them. I could tell you what I think are the greatest concerns to me or to most of the people I kind of know, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that those are that's correct. So let's start by finding out what exactly it is, and this is probably within the realms of a royal commission or something along akin to that, we need to find out what it is that the public actually want the police to do. And then we need to do it. Because we're public servants, and that's what the public expect. And if it's not one of those things, we shouldn't be doing it. Right, and the, the next one, number nine, is reform... Home Office data quality rules to allow the police to disengage quickly from time wasters. So this is very closely linked to the rules around crime recording. Um, data quality sounds dreadfully dull, doesn't it? Uh, it's not the most exciting subject in the world, but it drives so much policing behaviour. So I use the example in my book about how if someone uh, rings up or contacts the police to make a complaint, with sort of quite vague details and then they say something like I've got to go because I've got hardly any credit on my phone which happens all the time or they get cut off or whatever then the police spend ages chasing around after people to get a full picture of what happened in order to put that incident into a box that the Home Office will be happy with but very often members of the public mess the police around. They don't return their calls. They're never in whenever police officers come around to uh, see them. Uh, they, they are massive. A lot of people who call the police are massive time wasters. So I've never really understood why it is that um, if you miss a doctor's appointment, a doctor doesn't go chasing around after you. But for some reason, well, I know why, it's because of Home Office data quality rules. When people don't cooperate with the police, the police spend an inordinate amount of time chasing around after them. And I used to drive, it used to drive me insane when I was a superintendent uh, in the police, looking at some of these logs that had been, that were still open, incident logs that were still open after like three weeks, where the police had made 10 attempts to get hold of someone and had been messed around. And I would 
absolutely be doing my pieces and I would put a comment on the log saying close this log now this is a completely unacceptable waste of police resources um, and, and I would get a response generally from a sergeant uh, saying something like with respect sir we have not complied with home office data quality rules around incident resolution and I used to think oh my god so I think at a stroke, if we were able to do that as an organisation, we would save thousands and thousands of police hours in every force in the country. Right, and the last one, number 10, put police officers back in every community where they belong. So this is really about... Um, community policing obviously and in terms of community policing teams which in my view were the gold standard of policing uh, massively flexible problem solving resource building strong trusted relationships with local agencies boots on the ground to uh, engage with young people uh, spot those who needed um, either support or locking up quickly either because they were going off the rails and you know we could divert them into something a bit more um, constructive uh, or for that matter uh, the small number of very hardcore offenders who cause a huge and disproportionate amount of misery to local communities and they were very very good at dealing with all of that stuff and you know they could be in a school one day talking to kids and the next day they would be breaking down doors and going in and grabbing prolific offenders and locking them up fantastic flexible resource and completely decimated uh, following all of the cuts to policing resources by this government under Theresa May so those are the those are my top ten, and I put a I put a, a sort of a caveat um, after this, uh, saying poor pay is obviously a massive issue, but outside the control of policing itself. Um, uh, I could write a hundred more, dealing with ways of working, priorities, technology, leadership, and organisational culture, but these ten would make a massive difference in my view. The reality, of course, is that very little of any of these things are probably ever going to happen. I don't think there's the political will. I don't think uh, the people in charge of policing at the moment, generally speaking, uh, are sufficiently invested in any of those sort of things I've been describing. Many of them have actually been massive cheerleaders for some of the things that have been most destructive to policing over the last sort of 10 to 15 years. So it's kind of like, you know, having a builder come along and build you a really terrible extension and then uh, getting them, asking them to come back and, and, and turn their terrible extension into the extension that you actually wanted. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think there needs to be some very radical surgery of the organization in order to 
see any significant change that's going to benefit the public and benefit officers who are out doing what it feels and appears to be an increasingly impossible job. And just on that one, um, I put another post on LinkedIn the other day, which also had a, a massive reaction from uh, over 20,000 views. And it was sent to me by a ex-colleague by email. And uh, if you if you go on to, I'll put the link actually, what would be easier is I'll put the link to this video on um, the podcast notes and you can look at it for yourself. And it's a video which is shared by a Facebook group called Crime Watch UK. And it shows an incident that took place in Wolverhampton, which is, you know, in my old force, the West Midlands, uh, about, about a week ago, maybe 10 days ago. And all I can say is that it was such a depressing video to watch. I'm not exactly sure what the incident sort of what generated this. I think, and I'm probably wrong here, but I think it was uh, there were kids running, and you'll see the kids in the video. It's quite shocking, really. Kids running around that could only have been nine, ten years old, with knives, trying to stab some bloke. I've no idea why they were trying to stab him. There's obviously a story there. Um, but the police get called, and it all, as it's saying, the police, they, it all went off at Haydock. They, scores of people have come out onto the street. They're all baying abuse at the police. Uh, complete chaos that doesn't appear and again I could be being really unfair here to the officers who were um, in charge of I think I use that term loosely in charge of this incident because it didn't appear to be any leadership obvious leadership going on the officers there looked like rabbits caught in the headlights uh, they were trying to defend themselves with short shields, obviously pulled out of a van because they were getting stuff thrown at them. A couple of police vehicles got trashed, and it shows the the you know the people who who did that. Um, and then these two absolute clowns, um, they've obviously stolen a load of. You can actually see them pulling the bags out of the police, the police officers kit bags out of the cars, rifling through the bags, through all the paperwork and all of this stuff. And there's going to be confidential information in there, isn't there, potentially around victims of crime and intelligence and goodness knows what. And uh, they've stolen the police uniforms and then they're dressed up in the police uniforms, obviously either pissed or high on drugs. And it is the most depressing indictment of not just the people, the members of the public and the way they're behaving, but of the what appears to be a very toothless kind of police response. Now, I'm really conscious when I say that, that for all I know, 
you know, this this whole incident could have been followed up by a whole different police response, a much more heavy-handed one, because that's definitely what was required. Um, uh, and I've no doubt that will be there'll be probably a lot of uh, there'll be a post-incident investigation and a lot of arrests made for all sorts of offences, violent disorder and affray and criminal damage and theft and there'll be all sorts of offences there that will be investigated. But if you watch the video, and I will post a link to it on um, on the podcast notes, uh, and you can make your own mind up. But but yeah, it's it's thoroughly thoroughly um, depressing viewing. Right, I think I'm going to probably call it a day there. This is a much shorter episode than my normal episodes uh, for the simple reason that I'm not interviewing anybody. But I did think it was important to have the opportunity just to put a bit more detail around some of those points to try and explain why I chose them. And really important to caveat all of that with there are all sorts of other things that also need to happen uh, for policing that were not on that list, but were kind of outside the scope of the ability of policing to actually influence those things, such as poor pay. Um, and the the demand, you know, the demand issue needs to be sorted out. So the police need to be withdrawing from a lot of these other areas of that they're getting themselves caught up in. I mean, what is it, 40% of time spent dealing with mental health issues? I mean, that's an absolutely shocking situation. And uh, I noted that the Police and Crime Commissioner for Bedfordshire, I believe, is now going to be starting to charge the mental health services uh, for time that police officers spend spend dealing with mental health cases. Um, all I'd say is whilst I think that's a fantastic idea, good luck with getting the money back because I would be very surprised if you get a penny. Um, so how you resolve that is uh, massively difficult and complex. Um, I did think the other day, is there is there merit in, in proposing that if police get called to a private address where someone is having a mental health crisis, that they should be referring them immediately to the NHS and just saying, I'm sorry, this is not a police matter. This is a health issue. There's a mental health issue. We're not trained. We're not equipped to deal with that type of issue. Whereas an issue playing itself out in a public place where there is potential um, risk of harm to members of the public, say, for example, someone who's clearly having a mental health episode who is carrying a knife or who is attacking members of the public or threatening to attack members of the public, then all day long that's a public safety issue and the police should get involved. But for calls to calls for service to people having a mental health crisis at home, I think the police need to start being a lot tougher and just saying, sorry, that is not a policing matter. Lots of people will disagree with me, no doubt. Right, I'll leave it with you there and uh, see you again next week.
Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>